calling this series, uh, my, my name for it was His Presence in Us, Our Presence in the World. Michelle didn't like that, so I've changed it. There you go. So it's now um, Redemptive Presence is what we're calling it. Basically, we're talking about how we engage our world, how we engage our world. The Father has sent Jesus. Jesus went back to the Father, sent the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is in us. He's the presence in us. But we are not aliens. We are actually sent here on purpose, on mission to engage with society and the world. We're not an escape team. So we, how do we engage our world is the question. If Jesus' presence is in us through the Spirit of God, then what difference does the church make in the world? In politics, in justice, in our purchasing, in all of life, whatever you do, in truth-telling, in kindness, in your thinking, in your attitude, in your prayer, in opening the ancient scriptures, what is your attitude? What is your presence here in a sometimes, not all the time, but a sometimes hostile culture? I have a bit of a bee in my bonnet, mind you, uh, when it comes to talking about hostile culture in Northern Ireland, when people get on a rant to Stephen Nolan on a Monday morning, do you know that? And he baits the Christians, doesn't he? Not beats them, as in Belfast, bait, but bait as in fishing bait. Are you with me? Yeah? He baits Christians all the time, and they're suckers for it. They ring up, and, and, and we sometimes live in this culture of Northern Ireland as if we are the most persecuted church in the world. Guys, here's the reality. We are not at all persecuted. We have some great freedoms, but take advantage of your freedom. Live in the freedom that Christ has given us. Live in the freedom that you've been given through resurrection. Is that okay to say that? You feel okay about that? Good. Don't ring Stephen Nolan in the morning. That's my advice. So there are many reasons why culture has become hostile towards us, the church. And let's be truthful. Sometimes the church has fueled that Sometimes we haven't been the best, the best presence in the world. Sometimes we've been sectarian. Sometimes we've been, dare I say it, racist. Sometimes, dare I say it, we've been people who avoid the big questions that people are longing to ask and have asked and are asking. Sometimes we don't do well when people have doubts. We are here for the doubters. We are here for those who feel exiled. We are here for the broken and the marginalized. We are here to include people into the story of God. That's why we exist. That's our presence. So today is an intro day. Welcome to Vineyard Church, Dungannon. We are a church. We are a church, just so you know. And when most people hear the word church, they think place. Common question I get, right? When I'm out and about, when I'm in my civic uniform. Hey? Sorry, we've got a heckler at the front. Ali Moore, the big guy that was going around, lady needs to move, front row, burgundy top, just as you feel free. Cheers. <laughs> One of the questions I get asked a lot, people first of all say, oh, show you're a church. And then the next question, they always, like nine times out of ten, if it was a betting man, the odds would be low for me. Where are you? And usually, sarcastically, I say, I'm sitting right beside you. It's funny at the time when people ask, where are you? 
Uh, and so I say, oh, church, and then I, you, uh, we meet at the back of the, I always say the same pattern question. I'm done with it. We meet at the back of the old Wellworth Perry Street car park. You know the free car park. That's where we meet. And, and, and I get that. I get why people ask us, because we're more concerned with graveyards and buildings than we are with the movement of people who are miracle workers, who are bringing and advancing and ushering in the beautiful kingdom of God. Those who control the building control the church. But that's not God's design. The word church is the word where we get, it's a Greek word, it's just an ordinary word, it's not a holy word, it's ecclesia, it means to be the assembly, the gathered people, but it's a bit more than just a gathered people, it's a gathered people who are set apart, so there's purpose to it, there's, there's meaning to it, it's not just a gathered people, an assembly of people, it's a movement gathered around the simple truth that Jesus was the sent one, the resurrected rescuer. That's what our people are about. We are centered around this one phenomenal truth, which is a huge truth, that Jesus was the sent one, the resurrected rescuer. So we were launched over 2,000 years ago. Um, it happened in history. It was an actual moment from a movement, but now has become a location. A movement has become a location. And that's due to some people around, actually it goes way back to 300 AD. It's, it's a long, long time ago. And it's a German word, Kirschi, which means a gathering place. That's where the word came from. The word was changed from Ecclesia, and then it became this word Kirschi, which means instead of a, a movement of people, it was the house of the Lord, or the Lord's house. It was the place, not the people. It was the gathering place instead of the gathering. So essentially, over time, the idea of a movement, a gathering of people, a congregation, had transitioned to a place. Church became the place. Lord's house instead of a movement of the Lord's people. And that has significant consequences if we buy into that thinking and into that theology. So all I want to say on that is that this is the only place in the world you can't go to. All right? You can't go. You can go to the movies. You can go to the beach. You can go and watch Liverpool. You can go, if you're brave enough, you can go and do lots of things. But this place you can't go to, and you certainly can't shop it. You can't shop it. Ecclesia, it has its origins in the Old Testament. And uh, I think I mentioned this one time before, but this, this is just for a bit of fun if you're into this sort of thing. There's a thing in theology called the principle of first mention. Is anybody familiar with the principle of first mention? Really what it means is that when you see something mentioned for the first time in ancient scriptures, pay attention to it because it has a context for future reference. It means it implies that when we hear it the first time, then it has meaning for what it looks like in the future. You want to pay, pay attention to what will its function be in the future? How will it be played out? So this word, Ecclesia, it has a word. The story is found in the Old Testament. It's called the Edah. The Edah. I'll explain its meaning in a minute. But I want to take you right in this introduction this morning, if I can take you to the Exodus story. Is that okay? Are you up for that? The Exodus story is just what it means. It's not complicated. It's the second book of the Bible. It's about an exodus of a people. A people who were in slavery. A people who were called on earth to represent God. Now, the representation was of a nation to represent God to all the nations of the world. That was their one primary function. They were to represent Yahweh God and eventually the kingdom of heaven. Israel's job was always to spread to the uttermost parts of the world. They were not a perfect placed nation. They were not to stay in Israel. It's not about a place again. You see, your theology is screwed up when we get down to this weird uh, ideology of science. 
Islamism and all that sort of stuff that goes along with it. God is a God of the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So he's a God who is in love with all of humanity. And the job of Israel was to represent Father God, Yahweh God, to the entire nation of the world. Do you get that? It's soon to become the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So the problem is this representation, their function is to represent God and to represent them well. Now the problem is they're in slavery. So you're not really doing a great job. You can't do a great job just because of your physical situation. They're enslaved by the Egyptian empire, forced into slave labor, mainly making bricks and building blocks out of hay and straw. It's hard work, ridiculous work. And so what happens, if you're familiar with this story at all, just bear with me if you are familiar with it. They cry out to God. God hears their cry. There's a guy called Moses, a reluctant leader. He's on the scene. He is called by God in a, in a miracle situation or a supernatural situation. A, bu a bush burns and he, he, goes, he goes near it. God speaks to him. And then he has the task of liberating the people, getting them the exile out of slavery to the newfound promised land. Are you with me? This will make sense in a minute. There's a reason for telling you all this. So the Egyptians, they had a god, and his name was Ra. I was tempted inside, but I'm not making any mention of any other reference to Ra. Okay, Pharaoh was his incarnation on the earth, and Pharaoh's son was in the lineage of Pharaoh. So he is the actual representation again. Israel is the representation of God his God, their God, Yahweh. Pharaoh is the representation of the Egyptian God, Ra, and his son is in the lineage of that. So what happens is there's plagues sent, and every plague that is sent to Egypt is a direct conflict on the Egyptian gods. Are you with me? So every plague represents the God of that land, right up to the last one. Now the thing is, with all these plagues, is Moses got the play. He's in and all the action. For everybody else, it's spectator sport. They have no participation at all. They just get to watch it, and they don't engage at all. But the last one, the last final plague, they are not no longer spectators, but they are participants in the meal, in what God is about to do. So would you turn in your Bible to Exodus chapter 12? Do you need a Bible? We love reading Scripture here at the Vineyard. We are in not in love with the scripture, we're in love with the author of the scripture, but he always, scripture always takes us to him. So I'm going to give you a bit of time to swipe, to turn on your devices, to use paper, Exodus chapter 12, the second book of the Bible. So it's not a hard one to find, just go right to the front of that big library of scriptures, and there are lots of books in it. Go to the second book, it's called Exodus, because of the Exodus. Tell me when you're there. Shout, there. You sure? Okay, some people have spoken on your behalf. I'm going on. So it says in chapter 12, is that right? Verse 1, just so I'm sure. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt. Is that what it says in your Bible? Okay, we're all on the same page. So the Lord said to Aaron, or Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. So it's a big deal. This is resetting everything, time. Memory, there's a reason for that. Places, times are all connected with the story of God. And it's so is 
part of our life, isn't it? That there's places and times that are connected with our story with God. So this is a, this is a significant moment in the history. The first month of the year, tell the whole community. Now this word community is the same word where we get ecclesia. This word community is edah. It's the first occurrence of the word, and it means congregation. So the principle of first mention, again, it has a future context. How will it function in the future? Please remember that. Ida is the first occurrence of the word congregation assembly. Ida. So tell the whole Ida of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, then they must share with the nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. I quite like that idea. Because we're a family of five, now gone down to a family of Two, well, they are all still living, but they're all away. So if anybody is having, having lamb this afternoon, we are of a small household. Please feel free to bring some of your lamb to 2 Elm Drive this afternoon. Is that all right? Sorry, there's three. Please make for three. The animal you choose must be your old male without defect. And you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month. All the detail, and the members of the community, the Edah of Israel, must slaughter them at twilight. So they're now involved in this plague, the final one. Are you with me? So let's go down to verse 12. On the same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. Now, there's a reason for the firstborn, again, is the, the Ra thing. It's that Pharaoh is the image of Ra, he's a representation of him. His son is in the lineage of that. So this is wiping out the lineage of this, those who worship and represent the false god. It's very hard to wrap your heart around it and your mind around it. I do know that, so I'm not going to try and explain it for you this morning. You've got to stay in that tension, unfortunately. So this is where they engage again. I am the Lord. End of verse 12. Verse 13. The blood will be a sign for you in your houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's where we get the word Passover, Passover celebration, Easter time, resurrection, escape, freedom, Jesus, Messiah. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is the day you're to commemorate, okay? This is the day to commemorate the, the generations to come. They shall celebrate it. It's a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. So this is very important. This is in the mindset. It's the first time they hear the word Adah. It's the first time they participate in what the Father is doing in heaven. And this is to be an ordinance. This is to be in the memory of Israel for centuries, for years, for genera generation after generation. Are you with me? Are you awake? On this beautiful bank holiday Sunday. Are you with me? Well, it's not really a bank holiday Sunday. Sunday is. Okay, so Edah, back to Edah. The assembly one, our New Testament ecclesia called out for a purpose. So you're with me? You said you're with me. Every time the story is told in the history of Israel, this word Edah is mentioned, right? So right away in their memory, in their thinking, in their thoughts, in their songs, in their storytelling, in their artistic expression of painting and tapestry, we see purpose. We see meaning. They have a story to tell. Generation after generation after generation, it's the story of the Exodus. And Ida is involved in it. They are part of the story. They are part of the movement. They are part of the Exodus. They are the liberated the free, they've found the new land and they have prospered and they've thrived and they've succeeded. But 
People being people do people stuff, stupid stuff. Sometimes success and blessing and favor is too much for people. And what happens is in their prosperity, they have amnesia. They forget God, the rescuer, the story, the one who brought them out. They, they forget it so much that the kings, ah, we were talking about this morning in a conversation. We forget which was the good king and which was the bad king. It was just a story of good and bad and the majority being bad. They called for a king, they got their way, and then they screwed the whole thing up. Didn't they? It's ridiculous. So far, listen to this, so far has the thing gone AWOL that Solomon has lost the run of himself. The man who was given wisdom and understanding is now an arms dealer, supplying arms to other countries. It's nuts. As nuts can be. So they're free to represent God to the nations again, to represent God, but they abandoned the true king. He had gathered a community, an Ada, an ecclesia for purpose, for mission, for representation, to image bear the good, good God to all the nations of the world. And it doesn't really happen. But thank God for Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Jesus comes. And what Jesus does is he represents Israel. He's the new king. He's the Messiah. He's the liberator. He is the one who brings ultimate freedom. And he gathers. You couldn't make it up. How many people does he gather around him at the start? Twelve. Twelve representing the twelve nations of Israel. Could be coincidence. I don't think so. He's saying, I rep- you're Jesus Christ of Nazareth is now re- represented to the world. Father God, Yahweh, the kingdom has come, and we love him so much. So that's representing all the 12. So we're going to fast forward after his death, his resurrection. He gives instruction in Acts 1 8. We've done it through our, uh, we've read the scripture quite a bit through our um, anchor series, when the series we did called Receive the Holy Spirit. We try to engage you with this Holy Spirit, to be friends with the Holy Spirit, to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Acts 1 8 says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses, my assembly, my ecclesia. You will be my representation in Jerusalem and all Judea, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, Christians get a bit wacky of this one. They, 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 they geographically split it out, you know, so you've got to start off here and then you go near. And then when you've done your time near, then you get to go a little further and then you go to the ends of the world, right? That, that, it just means wherever you are, wherever you go, you're a representation of the kingdom, that the Holy Spirit has empowered you and you're now ushering in the beautiful kingdom. Are you with me? Sometimes Christians just get weird. But we're good people. So this word witness, and this is where I'm getting the idea from this whole series, that we are the redemptive presence of Father God here on earth. The church has a redemptive presence. We're not some escape act. We're not some uh, victory march earlier. But we are the people of God called to be the redemptive presence here in culture and society. And we're going to look at that in great detail. So witness. Any lawyers in the house? I've cheated. I know there is. Witness, yeah? She's not playing. So let me help you with it. It's a legal term. It's, witness means one who affirms the truth, brings facts to a situation or event. 
So listen, that's what we are. You and I are the church, the ecclesia, right? We're part of, we're representation. Our job is to represent well and effectively. We are filled with the presence, to be the presence in our culture and our world, to bring truth, beauty, life, and justice and righteousness here, near, far. We are called to witness, to be the redemptive purpose here on earth so that we bring the right story, the facts, the truth to every part of culture, which includes politics, injustice, our purchasing, our consumerism, our truth-telling, our understanding of the ancient scriptures that God has given us in his kindness. That is our job, church. That is our job to represent, to tell the beautiful and the good story of Yahweh. Are you excited about that? All right. Are you? See, what, can I ask you a question? And let me just ask you this. What if, what, like just let your mind wander. Imagination is part of God's gift to humanity. And we're going to look at imagination. We're going to reimagine our communities in the next couple of weeks. We're going to go through prayer, through scripture, that God would open our eyes to reimagine what our community and world would be like and should be like. Does that excite you? What if we became the attractive presence to the world? Not the antagonists. Not the people who are known for disagreeing with everything in society. Not for the judgmental or hypocrisy. Not for the people who always say no and you shouldn't and you shouldn't go here or do this or do that. What instead of being a no people, we were the yes people of Yahweh. Yes to the beautiful kingdom. Yes to his righteousness, his justice, and his liberation. What if we were an attractive presence, not dumbing down what we believe, not getting away from truth, but standing firm in truth? Do you think society and the world is looking for truth to be diluted? They are craving in their innermost being the handprint and fingerprint of Yahweh God, their image God, the God who created them. Do you think that they're crying out for truth or not? They're crying out for it. They want boundaries. They want community. They want the life that God has desired for them. Every country, community, class, and village, and town, and city want a king like Jesus. Stay with me. Allow him to excite and warm your heart to be in the presence in the community. Let me help you with it. Turn to Matthew 5. Here's the representation the church is called to be. Here is our vocation here in the world. You see, you do lots of things. Christians come along. I often meet them over coffee. And if, if one of the questions I often get is, what, what's my purpose? What's my purpose? What's my, what's my gift? And what's, what's God called me to the world? You know, so it's It's easy. It's easy. Regardless of what you do, whether you're a plumber, a pastor, an engineer, an electrician, McDonald's worker, whatever you're called to do, if you're a gardener, if you're a, uh, a sculptor, if you're a musician, if you're a teacher, if you're a nurse, if you're a doctor, if you're an optician, if you're a lawyer, God bless them. Whatever you do in life, your one sole purpose is to usher in the beautiful kingdom of God. That's your vocation in life as the follower of Jesus Christ. And do whatever you want after that. Do what makes you happy, seriously. Sounds cheap. 
and it's making a lot of you nervous. But your occupation does not define your vocation in life. God has called you. He has designed you. He has put his hand in you. He has filled you with the precious Holy Spirit and given you permission to extend and usher in the kingdom of heaven in partnership with him. What an occupation and what a vocation that we could all have, right? So turn to Matthew 5. He says, you're the salt of the earth, the church, the representation. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salt again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. He goes on to another analogy. You're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Do not hide yourself. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see representation, the redemptive presence on the earth that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven, not the vineyard, your Father in heaven. Are you with me? So never has this scripture been so apt for culture and society. Salt's main job in our culture is to bring out the flavors. Am I right? Yeah? Bring out the best. That's what salt does. Can you imagine that that would be the church's job, to bring out the best in culture? Not just to destroy everything in society, not to extinguish it all. But our job is to look for the God, to look for the redemptive, to look for what God has deposited. And this is a rich nation. We are not the poor cousins. We are not the embarrassment of the nations. Ireland is rich in redemptive culture, rich in missional people and places. The land is rich in inheritance, in spiritual inheritance. But we have to take, take that redemptive purpose seriously and responsibly and engage with it. So our job, one of the jobs of the church, any church, regardless of its label, its badge, whatever denomination or movement they call themselves, the job of the church is to bring out the beauty and the flavor in culture, all that is good. But this was not the only function for salt. Right away, people knew that in this first century, salt was for the purpose of preserving. No refrigeration. So we are called as God's redemptive presence in the world to preserve what is good, right and holy. And I am absolutely serious about that. Through our very words, our thoughts, our attitudes, our actions, our prayers, our serving, our kindness, our purchasing, everything that we do, every thought, every attitude, every act of kindness, every purchase that you make, does it relate? And can you take it back to the righteousness of God, Yahweh? Can you bring it back to redemptive people? Can you say that this is a representation of what I'm doing with my life, my thoughts, my attitudes, my actions, my kindness, my prayers, my singing, my purchasing? Does it reflect Yahweh? Is it a redemptive purpose? Does it affect society? And is it good for society? We are set free for mission and purpose. We are the church moving forward with power and presence, and we're called to participate in what Father is doing. Don't play down church. Do not play down church. Do not say it's something we go to. It's something that sometimes I enjoy. We are ushering in the kingdom. We're signposts to the beauty among the brokenness. Everything else is small. 
sometimes with our freedom and our luxury of living in Western culture, of having plenty, we can be philosophical people. We have choice. We have privilege. We can philosophize and, and debate of what church is instead of going to the ancient scriptures and living in the narrative that God designed for us. We read many books of, and, and people opting out of church and desecting church and church is my mountain and church is my forest. Don't play small. Don't play small. You can participate or you can take a back seat and watch and criticize and even encourage but not participate. It's nowhere you can go. This is the gathering of sent people who are formed by the redeemed one, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the resurrected rescuer to society who is still liberating today. This is no small thing. Never play it down. Never criticize her. Never dissect her. Never say, you know what? I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. I was one of those idiots that used to come out with that statement. But it's so unbiblical, so wrong when we see the bigger picture of what God has called us to. We are Ecclesia. We are Ida. We are participators in the movement of his kindness and the revolution of this beautiful kingdom. I'm excited. Who wouldn't want to give their lives to it? Oh, you, you know, you can't talk about church in that way. I don't know. The one I follow gave us one and only life for her. The church. Not to an organization, not to the gathered place, but to the gathered people. He's so kind. Don't play it down. Have I said that? Don't play small at our church. When I say don't play small, I'm not talking about the size of our gathering people or gathered people. I'm talking about our impact on the world. Do you know what? I could never, never anticipate it. What a ragtag bunch of small country yokels in rural Tyrone would do when the presence of God hits them and dwells in them and they surrender their yes and they go to the ends of the earth with justice. Well done. Well done. Don't play small. So how do we preserve? How do we be the preserving presence in a decaying culture? Now we're not called to replicate culture. The church of Jesus Christ was never called to be relevant. Relevant in Christian terms, let me give you a definition of it. It means 10, at least 10 years behind society. I'm just saying, you know, uh, I, I, I was one of those idiots again, that we could do everything better in society. And then I realized not everybody ties. Can you replicate the same sound system as Kelly's nightclub down the port? Or as my middle class friends say, and I have now become one of them the North Coast. Yeah. Have, you, have you ever done church 
We don't compete to be relevant. You don't want to be relevant to a decaying culture. You want to lead culture into life and be the design and have the design of Yahweh, the creator of the universe. We are designed not to replicate culture or be a, be a, a counterfeit for culture. We are called to bring the life of the resurrected Jesus Christ here, near, and far, to every sphere of society. That's what it means to be the fragrance of Jesus Christ everywhere we go. Where is everywhere? The Greek word for everywhere and the Hebrew word for everywhere is everywhere. It's your Monday morning. Culture, what does that look like? Well, basic definition of culture is the arch. All are manifestations of human intellect. Achievement collectively is culture. Culture is the ideas and the customs and the social behavior of particular people or society. That's what culture is all about. And think about culture and society. Think about the issues. Think about the propaganda. Think about the consumerism. Think about the truth diluted. Think about the injustice. Think about the things that are happening. Not in, You don't need to go to the ends of the world. You don't need to go to New York or Tokyo or London. It happens right here in Dungannon and Tyrone. Diluted society. Decay in society. Think about the cultural issues that we're facing. And I'm reminded, and we're going to talk about his story in great depth over the next few weeks. I'm reminded of Daniel living against the flow of culture. We're going to work on his story. But what makes the story of their faith remarkable is that they did not simply continue the private devotion to God that they had developed in their homeland. No, they didn't develop a private devotion. They actually made it public. They maintained a high-profile public witness in a pluralistic society that became increasingly antagonistic to their faith. Not like us, to be honest with you. That is why their story has such a powerful message for the world today. The story of Daniel and his friends is loud and clear call to our generation to be what? To be courageous. Not to play small. Not to lose our nerve and to allow the expression of faith to be diluted and squeezed out of the public space in the public square. We're not to be spineless and ineffective. We're the church of Jesus Christ. We're a pretty big deal. So we've got to learn to represent them and live present in a new way. A new way of living, a new way of life. To be church, not to hide away or embrace culture. So you can do two things. We can close the doors and make ourselves a fortress from the world. Or we can be the dictators and the victorious ones who pontificate to society. This is not what God has called us to. We have to learn the language to engage in a culture, to train the world to live right. That's what our job is, to train the world how to live right. We live a life so compelling that we transform, but it's not about us standing in our soapboxes telling the world where it's going wrong. Are you with me? This is what this is not about. This is not about that. So relax. So some of you are thinking, this, just, this makes me nervous. Does this talk make anybody nervous? No, you're definitely not going to admit it, are you? Because if you think if I admit then I'm going to be more nervous, and then he's going to pick me out. So what are we, are we all to become raving, charismatic evangelists on the streets? No. Here's the job, and this might sound oversimplistic, but let me tell you what you're called to do. 
You're called. You ready for this? This is your new job. You ready? Ready for your new occupation? Or vocation, sorry. Be the church. Just be the church. There's nothing more, nothing less. Be the church that Jesus designed us to be. That's what we're called to do in society and culture. I've been talking to this one quite a lot today. You, you okay? Maybe you prefer it, do you? But we're called to just be the church. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be nervous. You don't have to become somebody else. You don't have to change your job. You don't have to change your personality. Just be the church of Jesus Christ living in this world. You've got to be who you're called to be. Don't be afraid. Just be compelled by the love of Jesus and be the redemptive presence. Be the better way. Be the better way. Have you, there's always a better way. In your workplace, in the gossip, in the, in, in, in the bullying, in the consumerism, in the craziness, in the adultery, in the, in the naysaying, in the negativity, in the, in the confusion of all that's going on, you have a say. You have wisdom imparted to you. You have another way to live. You can help your friends live a better life. You can help people, society, to live a better society. You can help your community become the better community. We can have solutions to problems. Do you believe me? Intense, you say. I'll finish. There's a guy called Rodney Stark. He's not an ex-man. Culturally relevant, not... He is a professor of sociology and comparative religion at the University of Washington. He wrote a great book called um, The Uprising of Christianity. He didn't set out to be a, a Christian. He, just, he actually just engaged in church history and culture and watched the early church. And he said this, and I'm finishing with this. Christianity served as a revitalization movement that arose in response to the misery, chaos, fear, and brutality of life in the urban Greco-Roman world. Christianity revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms. Love that. New kinds of societal relationships able to cope with many urgent problems. Starkland describes those problems. Christians help to elevate, alleviate, sorry, to cities filled with homeless and impoverished. Christianity, Christianity offered clarity and charity as well as hope to cities filled with newcomers and strangers. Wow. Sounds like home. Sounds like Dungallon. Sounds like Tyrone. Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachment. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. To cities faced with epidemics, fire and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. Stark concludes, 
What they brought was not simply an urban movement, but a new culture capable of making life in Greco-Roman cities tolerable. Let's stand. Yes and amen to this imagination of the early church. Yes and amen to this participation of the church of Jesus Christ. Now do you see how small it is when we reduce it to the place? Do you see how small it becomes when it's where we go? Do you see how small we become when we take back seats and be critical of the church of Jesus Christ, regardless of our blemishes, mistakes? So I want us to repent this morning in the purest sense of the language, to change the way that we think, that we would think differently, that we would think bigger, that our imagination would start to increase over the next weeks and days and months, that Monday morning could be different in your workplace. May it start in your tea rooms and coffee rooms and schools and playgrounds and parking lots and grocery stores and gyms and pubs and clubs. May it ripple out into every society every sphere of society where you place your feet. May you be the redemptive presence of Jesus Christ, carrying the culture and the truth and the news of the kingdom of God here, near and far. May you be truth tellers. May you be peacemakers and reconcilers where there's racism and inequality. May you be the redemptive presence in politics where you see injustice and pain and ill-treatment and workforce. May we be the church of Jesus Christ that not only makes our community and town tolerable, but it makes it beautiful and a place to grow up in and to grow old in. This is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Let's pause in silence and repent. Come, Holy Spirit. Wonderful Holy Spirit. Come in your presence. Come in your power. Come in your loveliness. Come in your kindness. Redeem our thinking. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Today's the first day of change. Today is the first day of new beginnings. Today is your genesis. For others, their exodus, their liberation, and their freedom. Can I pray for us just corporately? I'm going to ask our prayer team to come to my right and to my left. Beautiful thing.